the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. We've seen an increase in forest fires in the past weeks, and of course, environmental activists are blaming on climate change. Seems like everything is being blamed on climate change nowadays. (laughs) You're right. And with forest fires so close to home, people are more susceptible to the claims by climate alarmists that we must do something always. We must always stop them. But like most areas of the climate, these are overblown and misrepresented concerns by activists. There's more behind forest fires than human activity, isn't there, Mary Jean? Yes, for sure. And fortunately, there's a lot of organizations that are shedding light upon climate change propaganda, including the Friends of Science from Calgary, where our guest today is speaking from. Yeah, great. Now, my co-host Mary Jean and I will be speaking with Michelle Sterling, who will be discussing the critical questions about climate change with us. So go ahead, Mary Jean, and introduce Michelle. Yeah, for sure. Michelle Sterling is a writer, researcher, columnist, and blogger. She has worked in marketing communications, advertising, and film and video production. She worked as a career development officer for five years and paired that with economic development at a community level. Michelle also did a 10-year stint in Israel during the high-tech and science tech boom, working with many advanced industries in aerospace defense, software, telecom, desalination engineering, agriculture, and biofarm. She is now the communications manager at Friends of Science a nonprofit society that offers insights on climate change science and related energy policies, working with experts in science, policy, and economics. So welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show, you two. <laughs> yeah, I could just add, if people want to see you in action, they should go to friendsofscience.org. You have a number of really excellent videos there. And also you can go to rebelnews.com because Rebel News, I think you must be the main client. I'm, I go on there occasionally, but you, you seem to be on there more than me. So congratulations to reach out to you so often. Oh, well, thank you. I think uh, Sheila Gunn-Reed kind of likes some of our wacky videos. So <laughs> she <laughs> yeah. calls me up when we've got one out there. Yeah, well, she loves to have happy warriors, you know, people who are not phased by the environmentalists and can still keep their sense of humor, which you do really well. <laughs> Tough at times. <laughs> yeah, it can be easy to be disheartened when they're so prevalent out there. Yeah, it's kind of nonstop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's get on to the forest fire issue. Do you think, first of all, is there any relationship between climate change and forests, Michelle? And If not, what's causing the increase in forest fires in the past weeks? Well, you know, this is an issue that's very easy for people to jump on because forest fires are, of course, terrifying. And, um, you know, it literally is sort of Al Gore's nightly walk through the Book of Revelations, you know, so... It, it's very easy to feed into people's fears and it's easy to make that attachment to human-caused climate change. But that's, uh, you know, not an appropriate uh, attribution. And there are a number of scholars uh, who have written about this. One of them is Roger PLK Jr. And he shows that even the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, which is considered to be the world expert on climate change, does not attribute uh, any increase in forest fires 
to human-caused climate change. Now, there are some uh, climatic factors that affect it, and one of them is La Nina. For the past three years, we've had three consecutive La Nina years, and it usually tends to create a very dry winter. And in Alberta, for sure this year, you know, always when we reach this April-May period, um, there's this time between snow melt and spring rain. And that's a really critical time period. And if we don't get the rain in a timely way, which we did not this year, and we didn't have a huge snowpack on the ground either, um, then, you know, it's just waiting for a spark. On top of that, we had an unusual kind of blocked pattern of a mobile polar anticyclone, which created what's called an omega block. And what happened, it looks like the omega symbol from the Greek alphabet. What happened is that very hot, dry air was blowing with hot winds up from the south toward the northwest of Alberta. And it just locked in that position. So, of course, any spark, whoosh, you know, that turns mm -hmm. into huge forest fire. Mm -hmm. And one more thing on top of that, um, you know, in Canada, we have about 18 million hectares of standing deadwood because of the mountain pine beetle. And there's a map from uh, Natural Resources Canada where you can see how much of the territory in BC and Alberta is affected by that. That map is from 2012. So imagine that most of those trees have been standing now for a decade. <laughs> so wow. you can imagine how dry they must be. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. it's sort of interesting. That atmospheric condition you say that brought the hot dry air up mm -hmm. i mean that really isn't climate change because climate is something that is a 30-year average of weather so we're talking about atmospheric effects that are much shorter than climate that's right yeah uh, well you know um many would say that that is affected by the uh, solar activity and changes in the solar activity because that affects the the jet stream and that creates these bizarre blocking patterns um, but that's certainly not human-caused climate change. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, most forest fires are human-caused, not always arson. They, there is a chunk that is arson, that's for sure. But, um, you know, things like, you know, in springtime, actually in May, that is the season when in Alberta we've had all of the biggest wildfires in our history. We had uh, Fort Mac in 2016, Slave Lake, 2011, which was arson. Uh, Chisholm, I think, was around 2001. Um, then going back, if you go back to 1950, uh, that was the Chinchanga firestorm. And the smoke pall from that was seen around the world. Um, oh, wow. In Toronto, people had to drive uh, with their lights on during the day, the power consumption, I think, doubled or something like that because it was pitch dark and people mm -hmm. thought perhaps mm -hmm. there'd been a nuclear storm somewhere or a mm -hmm. nuclear attack somewhere. And this was like the, the, uh, the uh, effects of it. But it was really, you know, they, and they couldn't smell it because the uh, smoke pall was so high up in the atmosphere. It just created the pall, but no one could smell it. So, of course, mm -hmm. you know, people didn't know what was going on. Anyway. So for, our, for our American listening audience, mm -hmm. so the fire occurred in Calgary, and yet the smoke was as far as Toronto, which is what, about 1,500 miles? Oh, the, the fire actually occurred in northern Alberta and B.C. That was the Chinchanga in 1950. 
And it, yes, it went all over the world. There were all kinds of places that were reporting that the sun had gone blue, that the moon had gone blue. Um, you know, and there's quite a lot of research by uh, Mike Frum of the U.S. Naval Labs. He's okay. done a lot of work on um, pyrocumulonimbus clouds. These are like fire clouds, you know, the big bubbly, huge clouds of smoke that go up, they go way, way up above the tropopause. Once mm -hmm. they're up there, whoosh, you know, the atmospheric conditions just carry that, that smoke and ash all over the world. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. and, and I guess we're seeing probably a little bit of a cooling effect at that time, eh? Well, it's interesting. He said uh, in an interview, and we have this in a short video that's on our website that we did a few years ago, uh, which is called Burning Questions. We used a clip of uh, Mike from interview, and he said that um, because it creates these clouds, it can be warming or cooling. But he said what was very interesting is that they used to think all the kinds of ash and such like that they found around the world were from volcanoes. And then mm -hmm. they realized, no, it's from these incredible storms and the amount of energy released also is really something you know because the climate people are always talking about energy balance it's a phenomenal amount if i can find it i'll i'll let you know what it is mm -hmm. energy produced by the fires is that what you're saying yes yeah it's it's staggering let me just see if i can find this yeah yeah so so that's pretty amazing i mean i've never actually seen a forest fire have you actually been out to see what they actually look like because they look pretty scary <laughs> uh no i haven't i've seen uh kind of prairie type fires but i haven't mm -hmm. seen those big fires way up north mm -hmm. and of course you know once if the fire is not burning anywhere near um in infrastructure or communities well they just let it burn you know because mm -hmm. that's how the forest renews itself so yeah, that, yeah that you know people get annoyed by that because they think well why aren't they putting them out because i can't breathe in new york well, well isn't that part yeah. of the reason why you know that we have been putting them out isn't that part of the reason why we have all the buildup of deadwood um well not entirely you know the buildup of deadwood we uh, oh i see what you mean yes yes that's true because we have been uh suppressing fires and mm -hmm. not burning that off yes that's true so, Michelle, there's a fellow by the name of Stephen Pine who works at the University of Arizona. He's also a fire expert. And he says that before the Europeans came to North America, there would be fires that would cover areas equivalent to whole states in the U.S. And they would burn for weeks until they eventually came to a natural barrier like the Mississippi River or the Rocky Mountains. So the whole idea that fires are increasing, I mean, that doesn't sound true at all, does it? Uh, it's not. Yeah. And you can see that if you look at the statistics, you can see that it's not. Um, but, you know, people only see the headlines. And of course, the headlines are all catastrophic and hysterical. So. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, especially now, because we're more uh, in tune with like the media and everything. And if it's forest fire that normally we wouldn't have known about, everyone knows about it now. So I think that that's another thing factor with yeah. natural disasters we're more aware of them now because everyone is more uh, connected well and the media can get out there you know uh, at one point in alberta the alberta government was kind of begging people please don't bring drones you know do not fly your drones near the wildfires because they're actually interfering with the 
uh, firefighters work, you know? Yeah. So it, you know, and uh, I think it was Kyle Britton, who's a great uh, weathercaster, by the way, I think he's a wonderful guy, but he was standing like right beside this huge, huge fire. It was terrifying. And you could see wildlife running in the backdrop. Um, I mean, I don't know if he was green screening. I don't think he was. I think he was actually there. Um, I would never be there. That would be terrifying. So there's mm -hmm. a couple of things working here. It's partly observational bias because there's more people to see what's there. You know, I used to say that one of the things about extreme weather is that if a hundred years ago, a tornado hit Oklahoma, there's a good chance nobody would see it. Whereas now we have people with cell phones all over the place. So, so it strikes me, Michelle, that it's partly that there's just more people to see things that are happening. But I think it's also a bit of a weather climate change hypochondria. So we suddenly notice everything a lot more. So do you think it's largely observational bias that makes people think that we're having more fires? Yes, that and media. You know, the media are always um, uh, attributing everything to wildfires. Uh, when, you know, these wildfires would naturally happen. And as you pointed out in the past, they, they were huge. They engulfed huge areas. So um, it's, I think it's just the repetitive media. And in fact, um, I'm going to be doing a short video on this, but there's a group called the Columbia Journalism Review. They have a combined network of uh, 400 media outlets plus that reach 2 billion people. And uh, they have what's called covering climate now. And mm -hmm. so they pump out the same stuff to all those media outlets. And one of the things they did in a magazine that they first issued when they started this was they interviewed a climate scientist, a wildfire expert, no, they interviewed the director of the dystopian movie, Mad Max. And, <laughs> and, and what was his job? It was to teach them how to make climate fear compelling. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, Can you believe that? Yeah, it's crazy how they, uh, they're not really wanting to get the, the truth from real experts here. They're just continuing the narrative. Mm -hmm. Right, and it, it terrifies people, you know, yeah. so... Um, so they may yeah. not be very good at the science, but they're good at the terrorizing. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly it. And it's completely contrary to all journalistic principles. Um, mm -hmm. I found that graph I was mentioning to you, and I will also send it to you after so that you can post it anywhere you want. But yeah. it's a comparison of energy equivalent release between the Hiroshima atomic bomb and energy release of Alberta wildfires. The oh, Chisholm... Wow. 2001 wildfire, which formed an 18-kilometer-high pyrocumulonimbus cloud, and the overall energy release equivalent of the Slave Lake fire complex, it shows that Hiroshima was uh, 13 kilotons TNT energy release. Mm -hmm. But the Chisholm wildfire, which was 18 kilometers high, um, oh, and, and that was only only 10 kilotons. Mm -hmm. uh, the Chisholm fire was one megaton and the Slave Lake com complex was the equivalent of 28 megatons of TNT and it was wow. 30 megatons. Holy smokes. That's yeah, amazing. so it's unbelievable. Yeah. Can, can we just take a step back? 
it's sure. something your, our, our American audience may not be familiar with. You were saying a lot of the deadwood that's piled up over the last decade or so is caused by the mountain pine beetle. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a bit more? What is the mountain pine beetle? Uh, well, it's a kind of a little tiny bug that gets underneath the bark of the tree and, and uh, makes... Um, very interesting little patterns. In fact, I think Sheila Ganry said that she has one of her guests who makes uh, jewelry or something out of it or furniture out of it. But it, it of course, disrupts the, the tree's ability to, to grow and mm -hmm. kills it. Now these beetles, if you have very cold winters that are minus 40 for a certain number of days, I think it has to be a week at a time, it kills them. But if you have milder winters, then they survive and they proliferate. So mm -hmm. that's what happened. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me like we should let some of our fires burn. That's the first thing, recognize that it's natural. And we should do a better job of maintaining our forests, which I understand the federal government's doing a pretty terrible job of that. Because I was reading about the prescribed burns, which is part of forest maintenance. Apparently Canada is doing very little of that. Is that right? Um. You know, I'm not an expert on that. I think that you might mm -hmm. want to look at um, what's called Hot Shot Wake Up. He's a uh, wildfire guy who's on Twitter oh, and he's okay. got a Substack, and he went into the, some of that uh, recently. Mm -hmm. But you know, one thing to consider is that the U.S. has lots and lots of parks, and they're generally smaller than here, and that's oh, where yeah. they're doing those prescribed burns. And of course, they have high, higher visitor ratios simply because, you know, much bigger population. Whereas yeah. here, many of our parks are enormous and the areas that most people go to are restricted. So, you know, I don't know that they're doing the same kind of prescribed burns for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw, saw this video of a helicopter actually throwing fire down into the forest and some people were saying, oh, well, this is yeah, eco-terrorists, you know, they're purposely starting the fire. But I was reading in another web page from an expert on fire said, no, no, this is part of this prescribed burn. So that's a normal process, isn't it, in Alberta? They, they actually do prescribe burns. What, do they do it to stop the fire from progressing or, or what is the reason? Well, yeah, I sent that to our uh, forestry expert and he said that, yes, they do these uh, to try and do a back burn. So they're trying mm -hmm. to um, make sure that uh, the fire can't progress any further. They're actually building a, a you know, a, a fire break okay. by flying in and they, they can, you know, they have pretty good kind of forecasting on wind and weather now. Uh, so they can say, okay, you know, it probably will go in this direction. So let's go in there when we can burn it out and stop it so that it can't go any further yeah. than that. So you but, burn up all the fuel before the fire gets there so that it can't go beyond that area. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. Especially I would say if you're going to be in some critical area, uh, you know, where you don't want it to get to say uh, pipelines or power lines or other kinds of infrastructure or communities, you know, if you can burn a fire break, in the way of a fire that, that hopefully can stop it from jumping and going further. Yeah. And I want to mention like as a public service for everyone in Canada, there's a thing called fire smart. Um, there are provincial smart fire smart groups, but there's also the 
federal one, and it offers tips on how individuals and communities can protect themselves from wildfire. And the mm -hmm. same in the United States, it's called fire wise. Uh, so very similar, you know, the only changes are related to the geography and the rules, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things is, is setbacks from your house. Like there's a very interesting U.S. Uh, FireWise video, which shows that your house can survive a wildfire, but not if you've got junk on your deck that's going to light on fire, not if you've got brush and shrubs right up to your house, you know, not if you have um, a shingled uh, roof, that, especially if it's got some litter on it from, um, you know, fallen leaves and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Once those start on fire, that starts your house on fire. So it's amazing to see this video, but then they show some houses that actually survived. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it makes sense. Just before we leave the fire topic, mm -hmm. some people are saying that eco-terrorists are actually setting fires because some of the things that they're forecasting are not coming true. So they make the fires. And you might remember the book by Michael Crichton, State mm -hmm. of Fear. And that was one of the things they did in this book. Do you think that might be happening or is happening uh, in some cases across Canada? Uh, well, I don't like to speculate on that because, uh, you know, we should let the police and um, fire inspectors do their job. It is a possibility. Mm -hmm. We know that people have been caught lighting fires. We know that Slave Lake was, uh, it was a huge, huge fire wiped out most of Slave Lake in 2011. Um, that was arson. So we know what happens, uh, and uh, Michael Creighton's book is certainly right on. Um, uh, the other thing, though, I think that people should be aware of, you know, we are in geopolitical conflicts. We are, whether we like to say it or not, we are attached to that conflict in Ukraine. We are also in a conflict with China. We know that the, uh, there's investigations going on right now related to election interference, um, we know that there are competitor nations in the world who would love to keep Alberta's oil off world markets. So one way to do that is to cause chaos and economic pain. So any of these are, are real factors. And we know, you know, during World War II, Japan used fire balloons to light fires all along the California coast. Oh, is that right? Wow. So it's, yeah. a, it's a method of warfare. And it makes sense if you think about it, because... If you can keep your opponents preoccupied with natural so-called disasters that maybe they cause uh, to some extent, then you're less likely to be able to compete in all sorts of ways. That's right. You know, and it's a huge drain on resources, keeps everybody busy, tied up. It destroys people's lives. Ordinary people get very hurt, um, you know, emotionally and uh, angry, say angry at governments. Uh, why didn't you stop this? You know, so it, wow. it's, a, it's a really powerful tool and it's, yeah. it has been used a lot. It's used in, well, in Israel as well, Gaza. Uh, they're often sending fire balloons into Israel. So you're going to have to look up that fire balloons from Japan in California. That's, uh, that's pretty nefarious. I guess they're, you're, you're at war, they'll do anything, you know, so wow. Yeah, and again, you know, that's speculative, but it's a real possibility. Um, yeah, for sure. So uh, if we want to go on to the next question, um, we want to ask, could you tell us about the Clintel report that denounces the official narrative of the IPCC? So what is the Clintel report and what does it say? Okay, well, Clintel is an organization out of 
Holland. It has about 1,500 or more scientists and scholars who are signatory to the Clintel World Climate Declaration, which basically says there's no climate emergency and Mother Nature is driving climate. Um, and so Clintel had a group of about 10 of their expert scientists review the recent IPCC AR6 reports. And they chose selected areas. They didn't go through everything, but they basically found that all of the media claims that it's code red for humanity, you know, all the things that Antonio Guterres has been saying, um, things like, uh, you know, we must stop fossil fuels and uh, it will be the death of the planet. It's code red. Humanity can't exist anymore because of climate change. None of that is in those reports. And so they went through the science report and they also wrote a letter, an open letter to Dr. Ho Soon Lee, who is the chair of the IPCC. And they, you know, excoriated him for, for um, letting this kind of talk get out into the media. And no one stood up and said, hey, uh, you know, Senior Guterres, please sit down. That's not happening. We never said that in the report. No one called out the media. They just let it run. Mm -hmm. So those are really important pieces of information for the public. There is no climate emergency. And the report that Clintel did, which is called the Frozen View of Climate, mm -hmm. uh, is, is available online. It's a fairly plain language read for most of us. And it really just shows that uh, we're being hoodwinked. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I just went to the web page that talks about, well, actually, the name of the report is There is No Climate Emergency. It says, a global network of over 1,501 scientists and professionals has prepared this urgent message. Climate science should be less political, while climate policy should be more scientific. Well, duh. Yeah, I, I would think so. You know, it's interesting because one of the scientists I work with, he doesn't want me to use his name, so I won't. But he met with a previous environment minister, and this was under Stephen Harper's government. And he was talking all about the science. He was very excited. And this, the environment minister said, sort of a little frustrated, well, climate uh, science plays no role on this file. <laughs> oh wow! And he was he was pretty disgusted because he actually was a member of the Conservative Party and he got out of the party as a consequence because I mean it was his specialty and he was saying what the science says doesn't matter and <laughs> I don't think they would want that repeated so that's why I haven't used their names but yeah so it says here climate science should be less political while climate policy should be more scientific generally speaking Michelle. Do you find this is more a political issue than anything else? Yes. Yes, it is. It's, it's a political issue and it's a green grifter issue. Political, like for instance, we're being carbon taxed in Canada and we're going to get another carbon tax starting July 1st, the clean fuel standard. Um, and uh, at the same time, we're bringing in something like a million immigrants every year. So if you're bringing people from warm places. Most of our immigrants come from uh, China, India, Philippines. They're all coming from a warm place where they have a small carbon footprint. So if you're bringing millions of people into your country every year from warm places, they're going to make sure that you never ever meet climate targets. 
Mm-hmm. And this should be self-evident to everyone in politics. But obviously, yeah. you can hardly say, oh, we're going to have infinite immigration, but we're also going to meet all these climate targets like the two things are inconsistent. And yet I suppose they're afraid to say either of those things would stop or slow down. Well, they plan to have 100 million people in Canada by 2100. That's oh. the immigration target. It's called the Century Initiative. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, we have to go for a break now. Our guest today is Michelle Sterling. She's the communications manager at Friends of Science. Okay, this is a group that people have to check out. I love them. They started even before ICSC started. It's at friendsofscience.org. They're a nonprofit society that offers insights on climate change science and related energy topics. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Free, love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID 19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready 
for anything. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com Seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. So we're back with Michelle Sterling, communications manager at Friends of Science. I'm here with my co-host, Mary Jean Harris. And we're having a good time talking about what's real in climate change, the fires, all sorts of things. So, but what I wonder is, well, geez, is this being affected by NGOs? I think you had a question on that, Mary Jean. Yeah. How are the ENGO charities in Canada and the U.S. skewing public policy with using our public dollars? Well, I think most people would be surprised to know this because most people think, oh, it's big oil that's funding deniers, you know. But when you look at the green side of things, it's astounding what's happening. Like there's a group in the States called Climate Works and John Podesta was formerly their chairman. And they um, they are funding something like $600 million a year on all kinds of green initiatives to various ENGOs and those environmental, non-governmental organizations, that's what ENGO stands for, those groups are often charities who then, you know, get more tax-free donations from um, citizens who, you know, believe in certain aspects of um, environmentalism or conservatism, and yet they don't realize that these guys are changing policy for the benefit of the wealthy philanthropies who have investments in carbon markets and renewables. Uh, so that's why your power prices are going up. And the, the sums of money are staggering. They're really staggering. Like in Canada, and this is from reports that Robert Lyman did, in Canada, the top 40 environmental groups received about $11.2 billion oh. from 2000, wow. 2018. And um, the total revenues uh, received by the four main political parties in the federal government here in Canada, the, the money they received was $631 million. Mm-hmm. So the revenues received by the environmental groups over that um, period of 2000 to 2018 was 18 times the revenues received by all Canadian federal political parties combined. Mm-hmm. And over 27 times the revenues received by market-oriented institutes, and that would be like in Canada, Fraser Institute, and in the States, I guess, um, maybe Heartland. Um, so, you know, you can see the incredible power that this has. Mm-hmm. And of course, these groups are also very cause-oriented. So, um, you know, it's easy to attract young people who want to save the planet. So you've got a lot of foot soldiers. So whenever election time rolls around, uh, you know, this is how uh, these politicians are getting voted in because those who play along with the climate game get the votes. Mm -hmm. I guess they probably have lots of lobbyists too, eh? Yes. Yeah, they do. They have tons and tons of lobbyists. Um, Let me see. We have a report called big green money. And that talks about the lobbyists. And uh, 
one of the thing is they they not only have lobbyists, they also in Canada anyway, they apply for government grants. <laughs> so they get grants and they get consulting fees. And I think it was uh, the Alberta inquiry into the tar sands campaign, which is an attack on Alberta's oil sands. I think they found that the federal government was funding some of these activist ENGOs for $2 billion a year. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so like, when we when we put out one press release, they can put out a hundred. <laughs> oh, well, and they've also pretty much bought the media um, because in Canada, uh, I think it's on, um, um, what's the name of that agency? Starts with a B. Anyway, so one of these agencies talked about the Strathmere Group and how prior to the 2015 election in Canada, they got together with media influencers and the Strathmere group is sort of the top 13 or 14 environmental organizations in Canada. One of them is called CANRAC, which is Canadian uh, Climate Action Network, which has over a hundred members. Anyway, they got together with the media and they coordinated messages, <laughs> but they have something like uh, 300,000 uh, followers in their group and, they had $50 million of cash available to them, like ridiculous sums of money. Yeah. And yet I think some of your reports have shown that in many cases, the things they're promoting are not particularly environmentally friendly anyways. Yeah, of course not. Like wind and solar is not environmentally friendly. And recently um, uh, there's been reports from uh, MIT and I don't remember where the other report is from, but MIT found that uh, wind actually wind turbines raise regional temperatures uh, by about one degree and solar panels also raise ambient temperatures. So uh, that's the exact opposite of what you want, not to mention the process for making these things is very, very destructive and they can't be recycled. Yeah, that's interesting. And if you think about it, if in a vicinity you have a lot of wind turbines, I mean, obviously it's slowing the wind down because it's taking energy out of the wind. I've seen it claimed that, in fact, in the local areas during the summer, you'd get less convective cooling because there'd be less wind. Um, yes, I can't really comment on that for sure. I have seen some material like that. But, yeah, I believe that is true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, the next the next topic was... Uh, Dr. Jessica Winkle, how do you pronounce yes. what, what was her importance? I mean, she gave a testimony to the U.S. Senate. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, uh, she's the first uh, person I've ever seen who testified to the Senate on the conflicts of interest behind mm -hmm. these uh, various groups. And uh, it is uh, also rather staggering. Like she found that, um, let me just find this here. I just don't want to misquote her. Mm -hmm. So, well, you're looking, I just tell people, Dr. Jessica Winkle, she's a scientist at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She recently gave a testimony to the U.S. Senate about the climate change narrative. Okay, so that's interesting. She wasn't talking about science in particular. She was talking about the narrative. So, you know, Michelle, can you tell us why is this important? Well, you know, the, the conflicts of interest that she's exposing are things that we would never, ever put up with in our local municipal government, in our, uh, in any corporation. Like, mm -hmm. um, for instance, she's talking about central bank stress testing scenarios, which are developed by researchers who are also 
lead authors on IPCC reports, and they have important roles in organizing the international modeling community in the development of IPCC scenarios. Mm -hmm. So um, then the funding for the central bank scenario development uh, comes from influential organizations like Bloomberg Philanthropies, Climate Works, which I just mentioned, and the Bezos Earth Fund. So all these people have vested interests in renewables, carbon markets, and pretending to be net zero. <laughs> and then also McKinsey and Company, which is the world's leading management firm, according to uh, her, used a climate consultancy to produce a series of widely influential reports on climate change financial risks. Mm -hmm. And in defense of them using this implausible scenario called RCP 8.5, the report cited a peer-reviewed publication, which was written by its own consultants. <laughs> and they, you know, and the researchers did not declare their conflict of interest as consultants for McKinsey or their association with the asset management firm Wellington. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, you know, you'd laugh both Michelle and uh, Mary Jean. I went to the Canada 2020 Net Zero Leadership Conference here in Ottawa about a month and a half ago. And... It's interesting because you could see around the room that people were making a fortune on the climate scare. And I tried to actually talk to the lead speaker they had at the very beginning afterwards to talk about the fact that the science just isn't there. And he, he almost ran away from me. You know, mm -hmm. it's interesting because one of our other people, an Indian lady, and he was more polite to her, I guess, I guess he, she said he, he doesn't want to be accused of racism. But in her case, she said that he felt threatened. And yet all she was doing was asking, okay, why do the models not match the forecasts, uh, you know, as to what's really happening? Like, how can you actually then charge ahead with all these economic plans when the science modeling is wrong? And again, he just about ran away. But I guess they say that you can't tell somebody something when it goes against their way of earning a living. And to so much people, so many people who are actually, this is the way they earn their living now. So they can't hear the science. It, it just would destroy them. Well, that's true. I mean, uh, early on, when I started working with Friends of Science, I happened to ask uh, Dr. Ross McKittrick a question. And I, I sort of mentioned to him, like, isn't there a lot of money in the world being diverted into like carbon trading and thin air? And, and isn't there a huge job creation, you know, based on this faulty logic and faulty science? And he kind of went, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, even us, you know, we have jobs because of the climate scam, but I would like it to go away. But, mm. uh, you know, it is a huge job creator. And I think a lot of the young people who are activists, you know, probably get some nominal stipend. But for a student, that's enough, you know, to run around with a sign or whatever. Um, and, uh, of course, for students and young people, I feel so bad for them because they really have a heartfelt, sincere desire to save the planet. And it's going to be a big letdown when they realize that they've been tricked and used by these extremely wealthy um, green grifters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I used to speak to young people regularly at high schools and the kids loved it because they like questioning authority and teachers were so, so principals didn't like it. And one day I was scheduled to speak at a particular high school in Ottawa. 
And the principal called and he said, I'm sorry, I have to cancel your presentation. He said, we've been told by the school board, which of course works for the government, that what you're saying is against government policy. So I'm not to bring you in. And that was the end of my public speaking at high school. <laughs> so yeah, the kids are being totally propagandized. And it's really a shame, you know, I taught a course at Carleton University for mm-hmm. let's see, four terms, actually. It was just a, um, I was just a sessional lecturer and the course was a general interest second year course. And um, the students came to me afterwards and said, wow, we've never heard any of this before. Tell us more, tell us more. So I think young people are potentially very interested, but mm-hmm. they're being shielded. I mean, they're just not being allowed to hear both sides of the story. Well, and I think that people would be dismayed to know that they're probably just propping up their teacher's pension fund because, Mm. you know, what people don't realize is behind all of this is an organization called the UNPRI, Mm. United Nations Principle for Responsible Investment. Now, that sounds like a good idea to have responsible investment, but it's a non, it's a transnational, unelected, unaccountable group of over a thousand institutional investors, pension funds, and uh, such like. And they have $100 trillion in assets under management under their big umbrella. And their fiduciary guru is Al Gore. <laughs> and so these are the groups that can, you know, and they've been activated. Like in Montreal 2014, there was a, a conference and they had them all sign a pledge to become activists to push governments and corporations to be more um, climate uh, uh, activists. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they walk into uh, a corporation where they're invested and they say, hey, we think that you should toe the line on Paris, push the 1.5 or 2 degree Celsius goal, uh, follow the eco-fiscal guidelines. And uh, we think you should do that. And by the way, you know, we're big investors in your company. And if you don't, you know, it's pretty clear what that means. Yeah, it's interesting. I find that, you know, if these things happened in any other sector, we would call it conflict of interest. We would call Mm -hmm. it inappropriate behavior, et cetera. But because they feel that they're on the side of the angels, they Mm -hmm. can actually do essentially anything. I mean, if I go to presentations, you know, from Greenpeace or Ecology Ottawa or whatever, and I get up the microphone, I've done this, I've stopped doing it because it's, it's pretty stressful. You know, you get up to the mic and you actually ask them an interesting question. Oh, people yell at you. They turn off your mic. You know, I was at the cafe. This is a group here in Ottawa who are doing a public dialogue, trying to understand what the people are concerned about concerning climate resiliency. And every time I put up a comment, because it was a virtual meeting in the chat section in which I'd say, well, you know, you say you're basing this on IPCC, but what you're saying is not based on IPCC. <laughs> I gave mm-hmm. some examples. We actually made a web page that did that. Every time I got on and posted this information, I'm immediately deleted. Now, I think that what's happening is that because they're on, quote, the side of the angels and they're trying to defend the earth, they can behave completely unethically and people just look the other way. Or am I exaggerating? No, no, you're absolutely right. In fact, um, we have a quote and it's, it's from an article called A Philosopher at the IPCC. And it's by John Broom of the IPCC. And in this article, he actually says, in order to fight climate change, the IPCC must fly to remote corners of the planet. 
<laughs> to oh. have their conferences. And then it goes on to say, you know, I hope the others offset their travels. I know that uh, the British government buys carbon offsets for mine. So there's, you have, you have all these people on taxpayer paid junkets who are in turn buying carbon offsets. And this is a moral philosopher. They're flying all over the planet to save the planet. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the Copenhagen Climate Conference and it was interesting because while there's been bigger conferences since then, the Copenhagen Climate Conference at that time was the biggest conference in the history of humanity. So here we have people telling us we shouldn't be flying, we shouldn't be using energy, and they're using more energy than anybody. (laughs) It was was pretty amazing, you know, like it was at the Bella Center in Copenhagen, Mm -hmm. and um, they assumed that only 15,000 to 30,000 registrants were actually going to go. Well, almost all of them did go. And so you Africans who paid a king's ransom by the by their standards to get to Copenhagen and the Al Gore effect hit in full blast in other words it's just a statistical correlation between where Al Gore goes it seems to get colder Copenhagen had had its coldest winter in December in decades and these poor Africans were standing in line for 8 10 15 hours to get into the conference only to be turned away so (laughs) here they have you know, they're supposed to be trying to stop climate change and they're bringing people from all over the world who end up just standing in line, not getting in. I think a lot of the protesters outside were probably delegates that couldn't get into the conference. (laughs) (laughs) The the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah, we only have a couple of minutes to go. Um, Mary Jean, I think you wanted to talk about Friends of Science in general. Can you take over? Yeah, so uh, Michelle, if you could maybe give us an idea of what Friends of Science is doing to bring common sense to the climate debate, that would be great. Okay, well, Friends of Science is a group of Earth atmospheric and solar scientists, professional engineers, and business people. We started about 20 into our 21st year of operation. Um, And our objective is really just to provide climate insights and energy insights to help educate people and policymakers. So we try to provide a comprehensive range of materials, everything from peer-reviewed papers. Then there are a number of reports that we write, or Robert Lyman is one of our main contributors on policy. He was with the federal government for 27 years as a senior policy person, much of his time on the GHG file. He was also a diplomat for 10 years. So his reports are very, very important. Um, And uh, then we do a lot of plain language stuff like blog posts, some of our videos, um, some of our events we do. We're going to have a live event this fall. We haven't done that since COVID began, but we have a, a live speaker event. It will be at the Red and White Club in Calgary. We're going to have uh, Dr. Ian Clark and Robert Lyman. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's called Break Free from Climate Tyranny. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, so, these, are brave, these are brave people. I'm so glad they're doing that. Yeah, well, we like to have, it's a nice evening. You know, we have a catered meal. Uh, we videotape the presentations and then we present them later. So everyone can see them. They, of course, you can't have the meal if you're not there, but uh, so, so that's what we do. We, we try to stimulate open civil debate. Um, we, we try not to get snarky or mean 
toward people who are believers in catastrophic views. Um, and we're very, very concerned about young people. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important to maintain a degree of civility and respect because, you know, it's interesting. I used to be on the other side of the climate debate. You know, I gave present, I was an aerospace engineer and I gave presentations about how exploring the planets helps us better understand the earth. That's a thing called comparative planetology. And one of the examples I used was the so-called runaway greenhouse effect on Venus could happen <laughs> here if we weren't really careful. And, you know, a local scientist uh, who doesn't want me to mention his name, uh, he brought me in and he showed me, well, you know, what happens on Venus simply cannot happen on the earth. It's not even possible. And right. in fact, he said, if you look at the geologic record, you're not seeing the kind of things that they're saying in these you know, environmental scare groups. And I was pretty skeptical at first, but he was very respectful. He gave me lots of time. He gave me lots of information and I changed my point of view. So Michelle, I would think that there are people on the left who are convincible, who have a good heart, who just don't understand. Am I being naive or do you think we could move some people on the left? Well, I think that's true. I think what's happened now uh, with prices going up, skyrocketing, I think people have realized, wait a minute, you know, this is not going to change the weather, it's costing me a fortune. And maybe those crazy deniers that I used to laugh at, you know, sort of to protect my social status, maybe I should listen to them. And I find a lot of people are switching views now. Um, mm -hmm. And again, you know, it's, uh, we have a little thing that we publish called uh, a spectrum. You know, everybody's on a spectrum these days or, um, you know, sort of, it's sort of a color bar, but it shows everything from in the little white square, um, you know, that people are not really concerned about climate change at all. They're concerned about the economy and jobs and everything. And then as you progress to the red square on the other side where people are extremely concerned, they're terrified, you know, they sold their house, they moved into a condo, they walk or bike everywhere, they only eat vegan. And of course, anyone's free to make those choices and more power to you. But if you're doing these kinds of extreme radical changes to your life, because you think that that will save the planet, you know, I think that's over the edge. So somewhere in the middle, all those people can be swayed. Um, and uh, I guess we try to appeal to people on different levels. Uh, you know, we make all kinds of different videos and, and reports um, and we make, little fun videos for kids as well. Oh, uh, is that right? Huh. Yeah, we make some little animated uh, videos with little toys and stuff like that. Just simple little things, conversation starters, so that a grandparent or parent could sit with their child, play the video, and then chat. Because mm -hmm. I guess that's pretty important. I mean, we have eco-anxiety now among mm -hmm. children. So this is mm -hmm. something the parents should be showing to their kids. So where do they find that on the Friends of Science site? Um, on our blog, it's listed under Kid-Friendly Climate Tales, mm -hmm. P-A-L-E-S, and uh, also on our, on our uh, YouTube page. Yeah, yeah. So what's the blog address? Um, Kid-Friendly Climate Tales is the title, and we have a pretty good search bar on our website now. So if mm. you just look under those words, you'll probably find it. And if yeah. not, send us a message. You know, you can send me an email at media at friendsofscience.org and I'll direct you to the right links. Yeah, that's great. Well, we really encourage your group. In fact, I'm hoping people can donate. How do they do that? 
Um, you can donate online. You can join us also, and then you'll get our regular newsletters that our volunteers put together with, you know, roundup of one is called extracts. It's more the political aspect of climate science. The other is called CLISI, and it deals with recent peer-reviewed papers and gray papers, um, more on the science end of things. Um, so if you join us, become a member, you'll get those and a few other uh, distribution of our materials. Uh, you can send us an e-transfer. That's a simple one. We're going into our 21st year of operation. $21 would be great. If you can send more, fantastic. But you can send it to contact at friendsofscience.org. Yeah, that's wonderful. I wish there were more groups like that. Anyway, so here we are. We're come to the end of our discussion. So we have to wrap up our show now. Our guest today has been Michelle Sterling, Communications Manager at Friends of Science. So this is Tom Harris and Mary Jean Harris signing out from the other side of the story. Mm-hmm.